This is the Author Archive. I'm David Freeman. This edition features journalist Henry Sanderson, who has a new book out called Vault Rush, The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green. I'm very keen on green. Um, welcome, Henry. Have you got a car? Uh, yes, we got an electric car in the in the depths of COVID. This was um, yeah, in the, the first winter of, of COVID. Um, we had a, a one and a one and a half year old son. Uh, we got an electric car because um, I was very interested in electric cars. And I was writing this book and I thought, well, I want to find out what it's like to actually drive one, to, to own one, to give me insight in, into the experience. So we leased we leased one. Uh, we still have it. And uh, it's it's been transformative actually it's been um very useful and, and good insight into how batteries work and and the limitations and uh some of the benefits well yeah i've i've got one from the very earliest years i've had mine for seven and a half years it's plugged mm. in now and so oh, wow. one, one feels smug as you drive around the countryside uh, yeah. you feel you feel a cut above because you're not emitting any carbon dioxide but your book shows me that actually I have a lot to be guilty about and to worry about. Yeah, the book is trying to say, um, you know, as we, everything about solving climate change is about speed and scale, right? I think those two words are important because we need to scale up um, clean energy and electric vehicles so that we make a meaningful difference to, to, to carbon dioxide emissions. And we are past that tipping point now where, where sales are really accelerating but my point is to say, you know, as you scale up to this this size uh, to meet this demand, we also need the supply chain to be to be looked at, to be cleaned up, um, and to be aware of of what's going on. Because I think I felt very strongly that before uh, clean energy and sustainability, you know, for so many years we've just ignored supply chains behind our products. We've offshored everything. We've offshored the consciousness of them. We've uh, haven't given a damn about sort of the hidden pollution in these supply chains. Uh, there's a academic who uses this phrase, ecological shadows that sort of spread around the world based on our consumption. And I think we've just, it, you know, many people have just ignored that. But now when a product is clean and green, as you say, as a consumer, you, you're buying a clean, green product. We need the supply chains also to be clean and, and green. And um, and also there's a lot of geopolitics behind the supply chain, which, well, we, which we can get into. But, yes. Um, no, I, I want to. But you start yeah. your book. Um, one of the things you go into is at the beginning of personalized horseless transport. Yes. Um, Henry Ford and Edison. Edison is a bit yeah. of a hero because he invented the first uh, recording machine. But yes, he was involved. Right. He was involved in battery technology, and he yes. was trying to produce a battery with a range of two hundred miles. and And they still are. You know, this yes, this still continues. Yeah. yeah so I, I I find the history just absolutely fascinating. Where you had this real what if moment in history, where the beginning. Uh, of the 20th century, essentially all these technologies were jostling for for market share. You had steam, steam cars, uh, which you had to obviously fill up with with water. You had electric vehicles, and you had the internal combustion engine. And and at the beginning, the internal combustion engine, you had a big crank crankshaft, right? So it wasn't the most uh, convenient technology. But there, you know, electric vehicles at one point had a had a meaningful market share, sort of over forty percent uh, market share. So there was this moment where you could realistically see the electric vehicle as 
you know, if not being dominant, then at least having a having a use case, right, within cities or within there was even um electric taxi cab company which, you know, sort of leased um leased the vehicles. So there was this point where it could have could have taken off. And you know, it was just a sad moment where battery technology just wasn't quite there. The charging infrastructure wasn't quite there. And the Model T uh, just swept all before it, and uh, his, his, you know, the story is what it was. And and the internal combustion engine. The surprising thing is, it dominated all use cases, right? It wasn't the electric car for the city. No, it just it just completely um, subsumed all before it. And I think it's interesting to remember because the electric car has been a long, hard journey, as 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 you mentioned, right? And battery technology has been long and hard, and we're too often fixated about creating great apps or you know, how exponential changes and how you know technology is so amazing and and I think batteries show that it's very very hard sometimes to to create um you know new technologies that that have have step changes and improvement and it's been incremental improvements but we're at the point now where you know you're an electric car owner I am it, to me they do everything you would want um and they also last a long time so We've passed a point, um, thanks to a combination of Tesla, China, and these scientists, where where we're really they're really viable. And you mentioned China. You have lived yeah. the future, unless we get it right. You were in China. You were in Beijing, and you yeah. said that the taste and smell of it. You saw the future, and it wasn't good. Yeah, I was I was living there during this time where. You know, the air pollution really was apocalyptic. I, I think that is the right word. Um, looking back, you know, ev- you know, so many days we would wake up, everyone would check the air pollution uh, data on their mobile phone. They would uh, put a mask on to go outside. We had air filters inside and it really was felt like the end of days. Right. And, you know, it would threaten to cause social unrest in China. This was, you know, it was that it was that bad, you know, and rich and poor alike are, are breathing it in, in, in the city. And so, I mean, it's one of the reasons I, I left China and one of the reasons why many people left at that time. It was literally un- unlivable, right? And I remember children in their schools, uh, they played under these domes outside, you know, to protect them from, from the air. I'll never forget that. Um, so it was interesting being there at that time because it showed that, you know, this internal combustion engine uh, growth was unsustainable for a country like China, the population in China, and they hadn't even got close to American levels of, of car ownership, right? So this is a this is a huge problem, and also many Chinese consumers were following the route of American consumption with buying SUVs and and big cars. So it really, I think, was a was a huge problem. And electric vehicles solve so many issues for China: the air pollution, the cutting reliance on oil imports, and also the technological dominance. You know, this this shift to clean energy means jobs. It means economic growth for the companies that can produce these things and produce batteries. So it satisfies so many of China's aims in, in one nutshell. But we've somehow got to change people's perceptions. Where I live in the English countryside, um, there isn't a public charger for quite some way. Yeah. And the perception is, oh, that's just for other people. It's not for us. Um, No, we don't want a wind farm, do we? Oh, we don't want solar panels. There's a sort of resistance digging your heels in. I mean, you're a journalist, Henry. How How do you change people's minds? Well, I think it's important to remember that this energy transition is a policy 
driven one and governments are saying you know sales of petrol vehicles are going to be banned by by 2030 uh, we saw california recently come out with that so policy is driving a lot of this and i think yes you can't you have the early adopters right you're right you know early adopters in cities um who are keen to have electrics for for many reasons and then we have the you know most people who you know resist it or or, or think it's for someone else and but i think the way policy is going people are going to have no choice right and also I think if you've got that policy deadline in your mind, you think, well, if I buy a new car now, um, how am I going to sell it in the secondhand market, right? In in uh, you know ten years time or six years time when when these things are banned, right? And also, you're going to have more creeping regulation against uh, internal combustion vehicles. So, I think we you reach a point where consumers are like, okay, now I might as well get an electric. Um, because it's, if I buy a petrol one, I'll be, it'll be worthless, right? Whereas I think a few years ago, it was like a, few, a lot of people said to me, oh, the next car I buy will be electric. You know, now I'll, I'll get a petrol car. Um, the other huge thing is cost, right? Which is a, a lot about what my book talks about, which is getting the cost of these things down. They're, they're still too expensive. Yeah. Um, just a bit of science, a bit of chemistry, yeah. a bit of physics. Um, the battery on my car works yeah. lithium iron. And that yes. was the big breakthrough, wasn't it? I mean, the early, I mean, 100 years ago, it was all lead acid. Lead acid, that's right. Uh, but now it's lithium iron, I-O-N. Um, yes. Some uh, people in the same sort of business as us put lithium, I-R-O-N. But that's, yes, that's different, different. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's lithium iron because these are the lithium ions that flow uh, through the battery, um, you know, carrying the charge that, that makes the battery battery work, and lithium is is perfect because it's it's very light. It's one of the lightest metals, so you want you want something light. You you, you know you want to save weight, um, and it's also a great um, you, you know carrier of of um, you know electric, electrochemical yeah of charge. So um, it, it works in, in in all senses, and I think the original uh, battery had lithium uh metal which is which is a very volatile uh substance in, in lithium you know pure lithium metal um and that's actually going to be the probably the future of batteries because it's the most energy dense uh, material but but now um lithium is baked into the cathode of the battery with these other metals i talk about nickel and uh cobalt um and essentially it's like a bookshelf and the lithium ions move between the cathode and anode and back again so does this mean if you are the owner of some land that's got lithium and cobalt and nickel in it, you're yeah. going to become ludicrously rich. Yes, potentially. I mean, it's interesting because this is some of the the issues we face, right? Which is that you've got to you've got to mine in areas that are most economic, right? That have the we talk about grade in mining a lot, which is the percent of the material in in the rock. It's not like you dig and it's one hundred percent lithium or or nickel. You know, there's a, there's very small percents of uh, of these metals in the rock. You know, like nickel would be less than two percent or four percent. So you're digging up a huge amount of rock to to get up to get at get at the mineral. So you want to be in places where there's more of this mineral in the rock and that's economic. But the problem we have now is that. We have other sort of demands that we want. We want the mining to be in the most sustainable areas. We want them also to be localized. So we have our own 
mines perhaps in Europe and, and, and mines in North America. So there, there are these other issues that um, that are cropping up that are impacting uh, the industry. And that's why I write about Cornwall, uh, which has lithium. And uh, the question is, you know, what's the economics of developing it? How can we develop it? Will the scale be big enough, etc.? Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk said that we've got to go into battery production on a scale which is unimaginable. Yes. Um, uh, and that's surely what we've got to do. We've got to, we I mean, the, to yeah. gig, the gigafactories. Um, have we got any yeah. in the UK yet? Yes, yeah, so there's there's one being built in, um, there's one in Sunderland um, in the northeast, and there's another one being built up there. So uh, we, we do have, um, you know, we do have one. Um, and British Vault is a homegrown competitor is also looking looking to build one. But just to your point, I think you're right. I, I don't think people realize the the industrial challenge of this transition, because we not only let's say there's 1.5 billion cars on the road, you know, we need to make those cars electric, but we need batteries to store renewable energy as well. Um, we all know solar and wind is intermittent. And to better integrate it into the grid, often you need big container-sized lithium-ion batteries to help integrate um, this renewable electricity but, and maybe just store it for, for a little amount of time um, so that then it can, can go back into the grid. We've seen in California, batteries are really playing a role now. So not only electric vehicles, but renewable energy. So it's a huge growth story. And uh, lithium, I understand. Cobalt, um, there's horror stories about cobalt mining. Um, of kids, I mean, we used to send little boys up chimneys to clean them. Um, in the coal cobalt mines in Central Africa, they still send kids into places where I wouldn't like my children to go. Yeah, so it's um, so cobalt is you know cobalt is um is a real issue because over seventy percent now comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. They're very geologically blessed with this incredible. Uh, rich cobalt copper uh, belt that they have near the the border with with Zambia. Um, it spreads over the the border. Obviously, the border is artificial. Um, you know, the Belgians um, mine mine this area. Um, you know, back in the day, and it's it's very near the surface. You can just dig by hand, and you can get to the the cobalt and copper. So, of course, people go out and and mine by hand um, for this mineral. But as prices increase, obviously more people go out. Um, there's very little safety standards. Um, children, um, you know, have been involved, um, are involved, and and it's it has been a bit of a mess. And and people are trying to clean it up, but it's it's a difficult thing to do because all around there's minerals in this area, and people there aren't many other uh, job opportunities. So it's a it's a really tough thing because I don't think we need to say let's just get rid of cobalt entirely because why shouldn't um, these people make money and be part of the the green revolution. So I don't think cutting it off is is the answer either. In this country, we now have a new king. We have a new government that is saying, "Why don't we become more self reliant on energy?" I know. Let's do fracking. Now, in my heart, I'm not very keen on fracking, but in my heart, can we do any of this lithium, cobalt, nickel mining here? Can we become more self reliant on this technology yeah so it's a really interesting uh question in that the west wants to be more self-reliant 
and wants to be, I think, diversified, is more diversified, right? We've seen with this Russian invasion what an absolute nightmare it is to be reliant on one potential adversary for for supplies. And oil, of course, and gas is different to the minerals we're talking about, but still China has a sort of Saudi Arabia-like uh, dominance in, in the battery uh, supply chain. And I think, yes, as I said earlier, Europe and US are, are looking at mines, they're opening new mines, but it's just... I would say that it's very difficult to open new mines. It takes five years minimum. You've also got issues with local communities, with permitting, with environmental impacts. So I think the will is there, but you know it's going to take time. And and also, what's the economics going to be of, of a lot of these mines? That's another thing to consider. Does that make you pessimistic, Henry? Not at all. I think um, it's not rocket science. We're going to do it, and the West is going to catch up. I'm not pessimistic. I just think it's... It's not a case of catching up tomorrow. It's going to take some time, but we are seeing real government uh, policy incentives now coming in. Um, I mean, there's always a risk with government support in the US and and, and Europe that you back the wrong horse or companies fail. Um, obviously, that is that is a risk. Um, but we need we need the support to to catch up. I do think that's true. In, in your book, um, you've obviously you know China. You've lived in China. And China seems to be future spotting and deciding to uh, become players where the cobalt or lithium or nickel is, like in in the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo or South America. The Chinese are there. Or or Australia, maybe are they there? What's so interesting about uh, China is that they're actually not blessed with these minerals internally. Um, They have some deposits, but they're not very economic. So... China is also quite vulnerable to to imports of these raw materials. So Chinese companies have had to go out around the world and and buy up lithium, invest in lithium, invest in cobalt, invest in nickel, which they've done in a really, really big way. And they've taken huge risks um, going into these countries and and even Australia and even even Canada and and Argentina now in a big way. So it is a fascinating case study where now you have the west going oh my god um look chinese own these these mines these 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 investments we need to to catch up um and there's sort of a shadow cold war going on um in in a lot of these countries and especially places like the the drc the congo you know just western miners and western investors were absent for so many years well china came in heavily um now i think the u.s is trying to re-engage there and try to you know, uh, improve standards, help Western companies come in. Um, there's also a big question about this energy transition more broadly, which is that, you know, what is the responsibility of the of the rich world? We're responsible for all the emissions, um, you know, the most accumulative emissions. We need to, I think, help a lot of these countries. Um, you know, rather than just ranting about China, maybe we need to go in and, and, and help these countries, help them, um, you know, mine these minerals process these minerals um you know we have some obligations to help them they're also going to be vulnerable to to climate change as well right so um that's that's very important i think the you have an electric car i have an electric car are we close to solving the problem of big vehicles the big lorries um railways are we close to uh, addressing that yeah, so we are seeing electric electric trucks, but I, I do think this is, you're right, this is an area where we need to see huge amounts of investment because these are the big vehicles, these are the big emissions. Um, 
we need to we need to we need to tackle this but people like you know mercedes benz are making electric trucks others are, are making them um it, it is coming if if you look around london now most commercial vehicles will be electric sort of delivery vans um things like that are very very good to go electric but we need yeah we need the trucking industry uh to go electric urgently and also buses you know th there is the bus technology available right and china's had lots of electric buses we need we need governments to really accelerate um that deployment because you're right where are the emissions coming from um you know w which which vehicles are being used day in day out um it, it's not you and i you know most people don't use their car that much right so let's target the sectors that are that are frequently used is your electric car american yeah we lease um a tesla actually um uh, mine's german when both uh, of us move on will we both have chinese cars i think um i think this is what's happening is that as i said earlier china sees it as an economic opportunity um to you know to uh be, be present in the future of the of the car industry they can never quite catch up with internal combustion engines you know from the earliest days of china's opening up you know when i first went to to china you know vw's volkswagen um were the cars of choice and then you know obviously more luxury vehicles mercedes um western luxury vehicles they've never quite succeeded in 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 capturing global and uh chinese consumers attention but electrics really are now and it's it's fascinating to see within china now um these uh, that you've got these electric vehicle startups that are creating really sexy cars that consumers want to buy and now they're starting to export vehicles to europe and i think europe is the is the real beachhead in 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 uh you know in their global expansion they see europe as a as a key market that could be willing to to buy electric vehicles us they're more tricky but we already have uh chinese um the mg i don't know if you've seen these mg electrics yes uh, i have around yes. you know china bought uh mg uh, a few years ago um and uh rover and all that so the, yeah they're, they're already here i think i used to know mgs when they were made in abingdon and yeah. um i i get a bit cross to see things purporting to be mgs but that's just my prejudice um yeah. the, the book is informative and exciting it's called vault rush and it's by henry sanderson thanks for talking to me and congratulations on the book thanks so much david it's been great